Welcome everyone, Mission Control Podcast, Episode 4, uh, coming at you on Tuesday here, Tuesday morning, July 18th. Um, last night, the Astros unfortunately fell another half game behind the Rangers, who walked off on a wild pitch uh, against Tampa. But we're going to go back a little bit here and talk to you about the Angels series, obviously one of the most thrilling, depending on how you want to use that adjective, uh, regular season series they've had in a couple years. Took two out of three, beat Otani on Friday, lost a wildly disappointing game on Saturday where they blew a six-run lead, uh, had about a 98.7% win probability after a Abreu's homer to go up 9-3. Then it was tied at nine, went up 12-9, in the top of the ninth, and after Diaz's RBI single, their win probability was back up to 93.8 or something. So they blew um, two very large high win probability leads uh, and lost that game. But then on Sunday, um, kind of pulled one out against all odds after falling down a few runs late. Four home runs in the late innings from four different players. Uh, A very good weekend for Chaz McCormick, a very good weekend for Kyle Tucker. You know, those of you who listened to episode three, I did this long thing about how Kyle Tucker has been bleeding athleticism for years and isn't getting to anything in the outfield anymore, and certainly um, an impressive catch to seal the game in right field, showing range and first step. to get the win for Phil Maton and get them, or the save for Phil Maton, uh, and get back to within three of Arlington. So, what are your takeaways here, Aiden? Um, lay of the land. Obviously, Arlington red hot, swept Cleveland. Now up one nothing in their series with Tampa. Um, division slipping away, or feeling pretty good about what you saw in Anaheim, all things considered. I think the Astros played pretty well this weekend. Um, There's a lot of individual things uh, to be concerned about, but, um, you know, whenever the bullpen is the reason for a loss, you kind of feel better than you otherwise would because this bullpen's pretty battle-tested, and you know that um, uh, compared to bullpens across Major League Baseball, the Astros definitely have one of the best. Um, And so I'm fine. I mean, not to say it wasn't disappointing, but uh, in terms of long-term, you know, predictiveness, by all means, losing a game by there, there are worse ways to lose than, you know, to lose a game uh, with a bullpen implosion. Um, There are definitely a few individual talking points that I think are interesting. A few good decisions that were made, a few bad decisions that were made that could have swung games, swung maybe a few, uh, a few playoff probability points down the road, depending on, you know, the severity of a a few injuries. Um, And you think after Friday's pretty entertaining game where they fell down to nothing, then, you know, scored four off of Otani, blew that lead, and then ended up prevailing. Uh, to say that that was by far the least exciting game in the series, you know, definitely summarizes uh, what an unbelievable series it was. Probably one of the most entertaining the Astros have, the Astros have played in, as as far as I can remember in the regular season. Um, but yeah, no, I'd like to start probably on Saturday. Uh, there was, you know, so Framber was going uh, his first start after the All Star break after he wasn't allowed to pitch in the All Star game, which was. I think you and I probably agree the correct call, even though he definitely deserved to start the game uh, uh, accomplishments wise. It wasn't that he wasn't qualified. You got to rest him. Um, and he pitched well, uh, struggled a thing in the second inning, gave up a three run homer, but overall was really good. Struck out 13. His, his, his curveball was getting whiffs. Every pitch seemed to be working for him. The Astros came uh, came up in the top of the seventh, took a 9-3 lead, and then they brought Fromber out for the bottom of the seventh. He already had struck out 13 through six innings. His pitch count was, I think, 89 maybe. Like a pitch count where normally he would continue going. Um, And they did use the A bullpen the night before. So by all means, there's some value to resting the A bullpen. Um, But at the same time, this was a guy who just had an injury. And in a 9-3 game, there seems to be some merit at least – in my opinion, to saying, you know what, let's keep him at 89 pitches for the night. We don't want him to having to throw 225 innings every single season like he did last year. And even though it might tax a, a Ryan Stanek, 
a Seth Martinez, or I guess probably not him, but even a Rafael Montero, you know, someone who you want to keep fresh or, and healthy, but it's not like your season's going to depend on it. Yeah, why not? And so obviously the outcome is that Fromberg got hurt. It didn't seem like something that would be too severe, although he may miss a start or two because of it. Um, and, you know, also the Astros lost the game after Fromberg gave up a two-run homer and Ryan Stanek imploded in the same inning and the game was tied. So a lot to unpack there. What did you think about the decision to leave him in? Um, you know, it's easy to manage in hindsight, but it did feel like the type of, uh, you know, inning that they could have spared him, especially down the road, given that he is the number one guy you care about in terms of getting to October fully healthy. Yeah, I, I think Dusty has an issue that a lot of managers have, old school especially, which is seeing every lead of any size as needing to be protected as if it is a relatively high leverage situation. Montero has to pitch in a 9-3 game in the seventh inning. And so I would have liked them to get him out, to get um, Valdez out. Your point is well taken. The A bullpen had pitched the night before. um, And obviously Valdez is coming off an injury where they didn't want him to pitch in the all-star game because of the ankle. 9-3, Nine to three, you'd like to get a seventh inning out of Montero or Stanek or Seth Martinez, and ideally be able to keep it going from there. You know, if you look at the math on it, the odds that even Montero is going to give up multiple runs with a nine-three lead are very low, uh, and so you probably could have gotten out of there with eighty-nine pitches on your ace, which is what you'd love, and the win. Um, you know, Dusty he treats Framber like I need you know twenty-one outs automatically every single time he's out there. That's what he's done now for two years. And it worked great last year uh, and it's working well this year. But yeah, not enraged by it, but I would like to see a 9-3 lead treated as an opportunity to get, you know, if you look under the hood on Montero, at some point they do need to start trusting him again. He doesn't look like a pitcher who is completely washed up. He doesn't look like he's mechanically fallen off a cliff. Um so yeah, I would have probably let him start the seventh there and had Stanek behind him um, and then taken it from there. Uh, the other thing, though, while you mention that game on Saturday where you know they implode and he gets hurt and they blow the lead, I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Do you feel comfortable pitching-wise with the overall pecking order of who comes out of the bullpen when right now? Or do you see... <clears throat> an inefficiency where he's trusting someone too much or not enough. In general, I think uh, there's the, the Astros have three guys who you who'd probably be most teams closers uh, in Presley, Abreu, and Neris. Um, I know Abreu has struggled a little, a little bit right, lately, and Neris has still been very good, but regressed back to earth a little bit from what he was was early in the season. And Presley regardless of Saturday night has been the just one of the best relievers in baseball, which he has been since the trade in 2018. Um, but I would say the Astros should be focusing more than anything on just the matchups game. And, you know, I, I'd almost look at it like, you know, in the, in a, in a seventh inning of a nine, three game, right. Ryan Presley probably so don't bring you in the seventh inning of a two, two game, for example, I get it's a regular season. I get there's a chance you, I get you don't want to use Ryan Presley unless you feel like you really have to. But the odds of ending up having to use Ryan Presley in a 2-2 game in the seventh inning, north of 90% probably. I mean, any uh, unless you blow it or, you know, whatever. Like, you're, gonna, you're going to want to use Ryan Presley in the ninth inning. So if the best matchup is in the seventh inning, yeah, go for it. There was that game in Seattle a few uh, – a f- uh, before the All-Star break last weekend uh, where uh, Naris loaded the bases with nobody out in a 2-2 game in the eighth inning. I bring in Presley there because the leverage of that spot, you know, sure it's a little unclear who could pitch the ninth. It might even have to be Rafael Montero in a one run game, but the leverage of Presley in a one run in a bases loaded, no out two, uh, two spot, you're not going to get a higher leverage spot for that. And Naris didn't look great. I generally trust Naris there, but a guy with swing and miss like Presley. Yeah. I'd take him any day. So even if the difference between Naris and Presley is very small, when you get into those high leverage spots, the impact of the small difference enlarges. And when it does, you're getting a guy who is going to, you know, save win probability. It's sort of this, 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 the relationship between run probability and or run expectancy and win probability is not linear in that, 
uh, it's very context dependent. And sometimes it's, you know, they're very, a very uh, strong relationship and sometimes it's a less significant one. Um, and in that case, obviously run expectancy um, played a big role on win expectancy. And when you have that, you want Ryan Presley in at all times. So in terms of the pecking order, I would, you know, realistically, I would almost say that Presley, Abreu and Nair should have the same number of saves at the end of the year. Obviously, that's not what's going to happen. No manager who managed in 2000 or earlier is going to uh, is going to agree that that's the right thing to do. And look, maybe there's some psychological effect that says Ryan Presley only feels comfortable in the ninth inning. I, I'd be extremely skeptical without any evidence of that. Uh, but regardless, that's what they're going to believe. So I don't love the pecking order just in that it seems way too stagnant. But um in terms of ordering the three guys, I think they're right to say Presley gets the highest leverage spots and then Abreu and Naris, you sort of play the matchups with. You know, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because obviously Dusty is not going to start, you know, against the Rangers going to Presley in the seventh inning because it's, you know, Seeger and Garcia do up or whatever. But I, I've thought about that a lot. Where In a world where we could, like, pretend that Dusty had some sort of cognitive flexibility... What really makes sense to me in terms of bullpen usage is an opener. And with and I want to get your thoughts on this, but with France, Bielak, you can argue on someone like Hunter Brown. I wouldn't use it with Framber. He's fine. Let him just, you know. But they have enough one-inning guys <clears throat> who are missing bats, who have good stuff. You know, there's depth there. You know, even with a guy like Seth Martinez, Stanek, of course, was used as an opener in Tampa three or four years ago. Uh, he had like 34 starts in one season and like 65 appearances. I think there's an opportunity there to get those top bats early and then get two full trips through the order out of somebody like France where if the top of the order comes up a third time in the fifth or sixth inning, this came up with Ronald Blanco a lot when he was starting, it would only be the second time seeing those guys for the starter, right? Because the opener kind of gets it out of the way. And they have so many of these one-inning guys sort of stacked up behind their main relievers anyway. Um, you know, that, that I, you know, is that a Phil Maton role? Eh, I think he... He escapes jams, and they like him in that role, and that's fine. But Stana can go back to what he used to do once in a while. So, again, like you said with Dusty on using Presley in the 7th and 8th, this is a purely academic discussion. None of this will ever happen. Um, if they have a new manager next year, who knows? You know, that could be something that comes back into play. But I would like to see them get more creative. What are your thoughts on that? Any openers for some of these more limited starters towards the back half of the rotation? Yeah, I'm all for openers in general. Um, you know, I, I, I sort of, yeah, there's this, you know, you'll, you'll get a lot on Twitter people saying, oh, you can't treat every game in a 162-game season like it's Game 7 of the World Series. And there's a lot of truth to that. So I'm not saying that Ryan Presley should start tomorrow's game. Like, the, you know, there are a lot of layers to it, and I understand that. But, you know, for a thought experiment, like imagine every game, or imagine we're just dealing with Game 7 of the World Series right now. And, you know, let's say, okay, so in 2019, for example, we were in a Game 7 of the World Series. And I know there were some there. I think Aiden, we can please. agree that. Aiden. Yeah, so I think we can agree that AJ objectively misused Garrett Cole in that game, and more than anything, in that why is Jose or Keedy in the game? Like you can you can justify keeping Frankie in, you can justify bringing Will Harrison, like high leverage guys, but just because you're losing in the last game of the year doesn't mean that you'd rather have Jose or Keedy in there than Garrett Cole. So that's a separate argument. I don't think there's any real argument other than. Unless you strongly believe that it's going to impact Garrett Cole's health, in which case there's an ethical issue at hand, but I don't think it would. Like, you start to wonder. I, I remember having this thought. Like, if they're going to say Garrett Cole's available for this game, why not give him the first and second inning and just say until you actually feel like he can't? Because when, like, you know that, what are you saving him for? Like, you know that you're going to want him at some point. Like, there will be a point in the game at which he's your best option. That's just a fact. And so you think last year, for example, you know, if that got to game seven and you have uh, McCullers starting or maybe they were going to let Javier start, you know, you have guys who, yeah, you'll get four or five innings, six innings out of them. Sure. Ryan Presley's going to pitch in that game. Why not give him Schwarber, uh, Hoskins, Harper, or Real Muto Harper to start the game and maybe get two innings out of him because he's the most talented pitcher they could throw in that game. Like in a one to two inning sample, he outperforms any pitcher they have in that game. So yeah, you'd want Ryan Presley. Now taking a step back, 
obviously game not every game is game seven in the World Series and if you're not like if you're not very confident that a Ryan Presley or a Brian Abreu or Hector Neris or even a Stanek is going to pitch in a game you can argue that maybe they don't belong as a starter but sure you know if you want if if you want to ease a Ronel Blanco in I'm all for giving Maton the first inning giving Stanek the first inning at least under the assumption that Stanek turns it around a little bit um and so in that regard sure I don't mind that uh but I do think there are layers to it where the it seems like the wrong time to start using openers is when the bullpen is as gassed as they are um this would almost be I mean it's almost it's almost paradoxical right because I was going to say this is almost be a strategy better la- used last year when the bullpen was a bit more rested, but you don't really need it last year because of how good the starters were, which is why the bullpen was rested. So there's a lot of circularity there. I won't get too deep into it, but uh, uh, yeah, and, I, you know, I think it's a fair question. You could look at the trade deadline too and say, if the market leads them to two stud relievers, could they try to, you know, again, you need a manager who's going to be flexible enough to say, okay, I've got to be a little creative here because I got a bunch of reliever innings at the deadline instead of the horse I wanted. But they certainly could right. use a reliever well there. And also, I like the idea of using the opener, someone like Presley for two innings. Oh, oh there we go. Sorry. Uh, someone like Presley for two innings because you could use Maldonado as your high leverage opening catcher. And then just pinch hit for him when the nine spot comes up the very first time in the game. Yeah, and say, I mean, honestly, I'd be, I'd be all for that. Martin, those were six beautiful outs. We've got nine, one, two due up in the third. Hit the showers. Appreciate it. All right. yeah. or, 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 or do it either in game six and lean into one. Um, you know, those are the only two options. But uh, anyway, I think back to the Angel series, just to quickly recap. Yeah. One other relatively questionable decision that we don't need to get too deep into because it probably involves some information that you don't you, you and I don't even have is in the top of the 10th inning they had runner on third uh, one out like a prime put the ball in play spot Pena seems to hurt himself on his first swing against a very tough reliever and Carlos Estevez Ch- trainers check on him he stays in he strikes out and he doesn't and after Bregman pops out on one pitch to end the inning he doesn't show up for def- uh, to play defense in the bottom of the inning it's clearly indicating that he's not able to play. I don't know why he would be able to play defense if he's not able to hit. So, you know, there's some, you know, you got to trust the trainers. It's very hard to know who who's at fault here, if anybody. So we'll just talk in, in general, in general terms about the organization. Um, but it was very uh, questionable that they let Pena finish that at bat. And then a, a minute later determined that he wasn't able to go out on defense. Like that just doesn't feel right. Um, and you know, I, I'm not sure if you have any thoughts on that, but it, it, to me, it definitely, it almost, I was almost wondering if maybe they could use that as a way to get a guy with a high strikeout rate out of that spot. I'm not saying that too many better alternatives, but you know, you'd like, you almost like to think that there are some better guys to play. I mean, maybe avoid, you know, some uh, other outcome, but yeah. Yeah. A couple shows ago, <clears throat> excuse me, a couple shows ago, I mentioned Dusty will never pinch hit like or make a pitching change, excuse me, two outs, nobody on, because he's just sort of like, eh, close enough, let's just finish the inning. You know, he doesn't try to, like, micromanage the perfect reliever. And and that's kind of what happened there, I think, with Pena a little bit, where he just kind of gets caught flat-footed and is like, eh, he's up there, you know, like, let's just see how it goes. And it's unfortunate because, obviously, they could use Pena – um, you know, healthy in the box over those alternatives, even with his slump. But the way he's been swinging lately, combined with the fact that he was hurt, yeah, I would have liked yeah. to have gotten him out of there, even if it's a Hensley at bat or whatever. And, and yeah, or a blind address, just say put the ball in play, just right. tie the game, or take the one run, the ghost runner lead, and get we'll get we'll we'll end this in the next inning or something in the next in the eleventh or whatever it may be. Yeah, um, if you want even even more egregious Monday morning quarterbacking of that. Um, after they pull him out of the game, I was surprised that they went, and I, I need to look up the data on it. I should have it and I don't. That they went with Kessinger at short and Dubon at second instead of the yeah. reverse, which I thought about for a second, and then I wasn't going to tweet about it because it seems like such obvious Monday morning quarterbacking after right. the way that... Right, no, you're like, the guy who throws the ball away. Right, right. But I, I, when they... Took him out of the game. I my first thought was, oh, they're not moving Dubon over to short here. He's clearly the rangier player, I would think. Um, ironically, it ends up on a throw, which is where I, I would not have expected the difference to be. Yeah, but, and he makes that throw, you know, ninety five out of a hundred times at least. So it's not right. a, 
Yeah. If anything, that's not really Monday morning quarter, quarterbacking because the specific mistake he made wasn't what you were alluding to. Um, but yeah, no, I back to your one, original. Like one more thing before we move on, though, yeah. which is, can we just, I know no one wants to hear this from us because it's on Twitter all the time. Martin Maldonado caught all three games, with the exception of the 10th yeah. inning of the extra inning game, which that's a ghost runner who scored anyway. They scored 26 runs against pretty much our main pitchers. Like most yeah. of the weekend was pitched by our main guys. Yeah. What value are we even looking at here? At what point? And here's the thing. People say, oh, you know, catcher ERA is flawed. And of course it is. Catcher ERA is not meant to say that this catcher produces a 3.5 ERA. But if your argument for Martin Maldonado, okay, if your argument is ignore the framing, ignore the blocking, ignore the offense, ignore the caught stealing where he's completely fallen off the last month and a half or so where he's caught almost nobody, like two of the last 31 or whatever. Ignore all of that because he has a special connection with the pitchers that helps us win. How would that not show up in catcher ERA? In that, you know, not to go Herm Edwards, but like you play to win the game and you win the game by scoring runs and not allowing runs. So if he did have some magical intangible value, it would be that the pitchers, for some reason that you and I don't understand, just allow fewer runs when they're throwing to him. They just have a little more confidence throwing to the mitt. They have a little bit more swagger, right? They get a little bit more RPMs on the curveball because Maldi's targets are just so precise or something that we can't pick up. But it would show up in the runs that these pitchers actually allow. And if you're saying, well, not this year, you know, Hunter Brown only threw 30 innings to Yiner. You can't look. It's been three years now. Whether it was Castro, Vasquez, a little bit of Corey Lee last summer, Yiner this year, Salazar a little bit. You can't say it's invisible if the game involves scoring runs and not allowing them. Because at some point, if he's helping the pitchers do that, he will be better at it than the alternative. So I just want to get your thought there. I mean, I know you agree broadly, but... What intangible are we supposed to be looking at on faith here? I mean, is the argument that Hunter Brown would have an 11 ERA if he'd continued working with Yiner? You know, what is the argument here if the ERA is not better with Maldi? Because he caught the whole weekend. He made a truckload of outs all weekend. And we lost one game and almost lost the second um, where those outs could have been very uh, impactful. Yeah, I think we could uh, dedicate a whole episode to the Yiner-Maldi debate, although we would probably need to bring someone else on if we actually wanted it to be a debate, because I think you and I agree here. Um, I won't go too deep into this, but I, I will say this. like, Yes, you know, people who argue that ca catcher ERA is a flawed metric, they are correct. It's by no means a perfect metric, just as ERA for pitchers is by no means a perfect metric. Um, but here's the thing. When ERA, when we say that ERA is no, not a perfect metric, it's because usually because we can point to like a specific uh, other aspect of a pitcher's game that's inflating or deflating his ERA beyond what he can control. Like some of the primary examples are maybe he's getting like babbitt to death, or maybe he's stranding an unsustainable uh, number of runners, or maybe he's allowing home runs at an unsustainable rate relative to his fly ball rate. Like those are all reasons why someone's ERA would, ERA would misrepresent his actual uh, isolated production value. Um, the thing is, I don't think anybody can actually do that with Maldonado. Like, they sort of just generalize by saying, oh, ERA is a flawed stat, so let's not look at this. Like, I haven't looked into it, and I'm pretty confident nobody who, you know, you and I have been discussing this with have has. But uh, there, I don't think it's not like, oh, Yiner just strands more base runners. Like, he's getting lucky. Um, and sure, I think there's some merit to saying that ERA is flawed and, you know, it's unlikely that an ERA is perfectly represented, representative of true talent level. But at the same time, do you know what's more statistically unlikely than that? Having uh, your true talent level not show an ERA for three consecutive seasons. Like, can you find a pitcher who you can point to and say, wow, their ERA is totally misrepresentative of their true talent level for three consecutive seasons? Like, it, that doesn't happen. It's like, 
you know, if you can get lucky playing a poker game or some card game every once in a while, but getting lucky in three consecutive hands is a statistical improbability and by no means should it be used to as, as a piece of evidence one way or another. Um, and so in that regard, yeah, I mean, this is the third straight year where the other catcher in the Astros system has caught pitchers to a lower ERA. And if anything, by the way, there, with catcher ERA, there's one more sort of confounding factor that you can point to and say, you know, this could be skewing someone's catcher ERA beyond what he can control. And it's quality of pitchers caught. And look at who Maldi has caught and look who Yiner has caught. I mean, Maldi has caught every Framber start, most if not every Christian Javier start. Now it looks like at least half of Hunter Brown's starts, where Yiner gets the Blancos, the Francis, the Belaks of the world, and he's still doing that? I mean, you look at last year, I mean, sure, I mean, maybe we could point to this as causation, but sure, Christian Javier might have been the guy with among the lowest ERAs on the team, and that was someone that maybe Vazquez developed a relationship with. Maldi got Verlander, Maldi got Fromber, Maldi got Lance. Those guys all had like sub 2.5 or sub 2.75 ERAs last year. Like, Maldi's getting these elite pitchers and not doing anything with it. I mean, to point to an absurdly small sample size as a piece of evidence, arguably, I mean, probably maybe the two best pitched games by Astros pitchers in the the postseason last year, both of which were by Christian Javier, were caught by Christian Vasquez. I mean, and not to say this is positive at all, but look at what Javier has become this year. Like the the, the whole idea that Maldi's like secret sauce is, you know, going to cure pitchers that, you know, Javier should be expected to do even better this year because now he's getting Maldi instead of Vazquez. It's just complete garbage. And I, I tweeted this the other day, like this whole idea that you can't quantify what Maldi brings is maybe true. Like maybe there's some, I mean, there always might be some intangible aspects. Like I'm not saying that, but the argument isn't ever that you can't quantify it is that it would have to be so large, the intangible value, that it's simply implausible. Baseball is not a sport that's designed for a player to provide what I, I think what I estimated it to be eight wins above replacement per 650 plate appearances in intangible value. And that's also on-field intangible value, I should point out, because there's a lot of stuff that Maldi can do from the dugout that he can do in the clubhouse, that he can do mentoring Yiner that he doesn't need to be on the field for. So eight wins above replacement for 650 plate appearances. And for reference, the last NL MVP to post eight wins above replacement per 650 plate appearances was Bryce Harper in 2015. So it's been a long time since we've seen an MVP do that. To think that Maldonado just has that sitting in his intangible value, just helping the Astros, is complete garbage. It's ridiculous. It's unfair to everybody in the organization who can actually just, you know, approach this problem with an ounce of objectivity and not bias to the situation. And it's honestly, like, it's pretty embarrassing. Like, I've explained this to people who aren't too familiar with baseball, and even they, you know, can understand why it's a complete joke. Like, you'd like to reward the hard workers, the nice guys, the the clubhouse characters, but baseball's not necessarily a sport that does that. Baseball's a sport that, more than anything, rewards the guys who can hit the ball 450 feet and who don't strike out on 35% of their plate appearances. Or who, and now who don't exhibit the second-worst defensive metrics for catchers in baseball. So there's really no argument to it. It's it's It, it, it drives me probably crazier than it should, and I'm sure you yeah, agree. You're but, yeah, you're cooking here, but I, I, I want to just point out that I think the most important point you made in there is that pretty much all the intangible stuff that Maldonado could bring that people say he does bring those traits do not require him actually playing in the game. If he's watching film all night and he's picking up tendencies, he can be in the catcher's room and he can talk and and be in the pregame meetings. Many backup catchers are in those meetings um, in case, you know, the starting catcher is, injured the night before, you know, that they're there for the bullpen sessions and stuff like that. So I want to get off Maldi for a minute, but, you know, sixth percentile framing. The other thing, when you talk about small sample, the six starts that Yiner caught Hunter Brown, the offenses that Hunter Brown was mowing down were the best in baseball. There was a series there where he played against, in three consecutive starts, the Rays, Braves, and Rangers pitching to Yiner, his first two starts with Maldi after the switch were Oakland. I mean, so, you know, it, it's just, there's no data there. All right, let's yeah, get it's, off it's convenient. Maldonado. Yeah, and, I guess as one final point beyond yeah. Maldonado, I would, I do want to give Dusty credit for one decision he made yesterday that I think was ex- an extremely valuable one that was important. You know, Phil Maton was, seemed like he would be considerably, I guess, to some extent unavailable after pitching in very limited fashion on both Friday and Saturday. But Dusty realized how important the game was in the ninth inning and realized that, you know, 
a third day of Maton is still probably better than a Seth Martinez and that Maton still probably should be available in situations like this and with the top of the order coming up. And it's not like Maton cruised by any means, but, you know, he got the job done. And so credit to Dusty for doing that because that could have gone, you know, pretty badly had he said, you know what, we're resting Maton. And that was a point where he clearly prioritized the now and sometimes that needs to be done in a, the course of a 162-game season, and they ended up getting the job done. So credit to Dusty for that. That was the right call, and I'm really glad he did it. Fair point. And, of course, didn't hurt. You know, we so often you know, have a total collapse with Maldi catching. Yiner was able to settle Phil down there to get that over the finish line, uh, which has not been happening with the other guy. So, okay, uh, one last cheap shot there. We'll move on. Uh, much brighter... Um, player to discuss here, um, a player Dusty's playing all the time now and getting great results from, Chaz McCormick. Now, our very, you know, first conversation we had, first episode with Chandler Rome, we spent a lot of time talking about the friction between Dusty and Chaz McCormick that Chandler had reported on and a bunch of fans and even some media people picked up on from an athletic article and you know, how dare you claim that Dusty has a personal issue with this player? Regardless of what's happened there, we don't know. We're not in the clubhouse. He's playing regularly now. He's moving to left field in the last couple Jake starts, which had been automatic jolks in left field for a long time where Chaz would sit when Jake was in center. Um, so Chaz is clearly being treated as a regular he is second on the team behind Framber in war this season. Um, he is legitimately a borderline all-star. I mean, obviously, he's about 100 plate appearances short of where he should be. He's probably about 70 when you consider the injury. Um, so he's not going to actually be an all-star and wasn't. But this is an all-star level rate performance from Chaz this year. Um, we talked about trading him. I think it's completely out of the question now that they could look at, well, he has the most value, um, you know, therefore we'll just play Myers and Jolks and cash in Chaz for a pitcher. I think it's out of the question now with the way his numbers have exploded the last couple of weeks. But I guess, you know, there's a price tag on every player, right? Um, so talk to us a little about Chaz. What are you seeing there? What's got you excited about Chaz? And would you put him off limits except for a very special circumstance in these last uh, 13 days. Yeah, I mean, 90% of Chaz trades would basically constitute the Astros being sellers. And obviously that can't really happen at this point. The only possible deal is if you can get like a an upgraded version of that Harrison Bader for Jordan Montgomery swap, where you're able to squeeze like a Dylan Cease out of Chaz and maybe a little bit more, then, you know, I'm for it. Because, you know, honestly, with the way both have been performing, maybe those talks can find their way onto the table. I don't know what's going on there, so I won't speculate too much. But, um, you know, Chaz has been awesome. And you, you made this point on Twitter, and I think this is a very fair point, where people like to claim that, oh, no way Dusty would have, like, dislike Chaz. Like, that's ridiculous. But if fans are going to appreciate Dusty for being a human managing the game and not being a computer... And sure, there's value to that. But if you're if you're going to make the the claim that that's good, then you also have to acknowledge the shortcoming of human behavior and what they can do that computers don't do, and that's form opinions beyond the baseball field. Maybe there is some reason why Dusty should not like Chaz. I don't think you or I are aware of it, but maybe there is some reason. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that what's best for the baseball team is keeping Chaz on, the, on in the dugout, and the computer certainly would agree with that. And so. Maybe it is a human shortcoming that Dusty's sitting there not playing a guy who, because he doesn't necessarily like him as much as he should relative to what he's producing for the team. Um, maybe it is. I don't know. It's a lot of that spe speculation, but it is a very good point that when you, you have to sort of take the good and the bad of a human manager where you don't see computers form opinions about players like that. So anyway, I think, you know, you can look at Chaz's numbers. His weighted runs created plus is up to 147 this year, which is awesome. There's not a single center fielder in baseball who has recorded as many plate appearances as Chaz, who has a higher weighted runs created plus. Like, I'm pretty sure Chaz is above, like, Luis Robert and uh, and uh, Corbin Carroll now, two guys who have been making headlines for a very long time. And so, like, you know, all credit to Chaz there. That's awesome. Also a plus defender in center field. Like, really, a, like, an asset. I mean... He, Chaz's floor was high enough, kind of like a Pena, where he could be a league average hitter, a, a very good defensive center fielder. That's a valuable player. 
kind of see that with Myers. Maybe he's struggled a little bit, but at the very least, Myers has a floor. Johnson now, we're looking at his ceiling. I mean, this is a guy who, if you pace him out to a full season of plate appearance, approaches six, six and a half wins above replacement, which you know probably wouldn't be sustained to the fullest degree, but that alone and get him to five wins above replacement. And that's a guy who now you got to group him in with the Tuckers and the Frombers and the uh, the Peñas and say, are, are the Astros going to be able to extend this guy? Like, should we have paid him last offseason? Um, and so it's easy to get ahead of ourselves. Um, one thing I really wish the Astros would do with Chaz is, you know, if, for example, I mean, honestly, now it almost feels like a moot point because Jordan and Tucker have proven their ability to hit lefties so well. But what, at least what they should have done before was slot him in between Jordan and Tucker. Like, basically say, you know, if you're going to bring in a if you're going to bring in a lefty to face Jordan and Tucker in two plate appearances later, you have to you have to uh, let him face the guy who has hit lefties probably better than almost any player in baseball over the last two years in Chaz McCormick. Like, use Chaz as a weapon in that regard, and maybe that scares them from bringing in lefties. Because I'm pretty sure Jordan and Tucker, even though it is marginal, do play better against righties. So you are boosting their production a little bit like that. So lineup construction is pretty trivial, but when you affect matchups like that, you definitely do get some sort of incremental wins. Um, so that's a possibility. Um, and to break down Chaz a little more specifically, I mean, last year his huge issue was breaking balls. Um, his uh, uh, WOBA against breaking balls last year was 141, which is abysmal. Like, it's it's basically what you'd expect Pena to be if you just watched clips of him swinging at two-strike sliders the whole time. Um, his uh, his whiff rate was up to 41%. Um, but this year it's all – it's it's totally fine. His WOBA against breaking balls is 326, which is probably above league average. Um is whiff rates down but to like 35.9%. Like he's clearly adapted. He's handled it well. And most of his improvements has come against right-handed pitching. This year, his WRC plus against righties is 134, whereas last year it was uh, 88. So that's a jump that, I mean, I don't you don't see players making that jump. Like that's a, that's a extremely valuable jump. And so, yeah, I mean, Chaz is the everyday guy. If he sits more than Bregman or Tucker the rest of the year, you know something's wrong because he's earned you know, the right to play every day. And uh, I mean, this is a guy who you look back on when the season's over and say, how is the Astros actually offense actually performing better when Jordan and Altuve were out? I mean, this is probably the number one reason. So I'll credit to him. Yeah. And I, I hear you on the lineup construction stuff where trivial, you know, you're talking about a fraction of a run per game with different Unless you just do a completely, like, deliberately bad configuration with Maldi in the top three or whatever. But you would like to see, you know, I've often tinkered with the idea that they should put Altuve between Jordan and Tucker and let Bregman be at the top and, you know, that kind of thing. They just need to make people pay for bringing a lefty in. Now, it doesn't always have to be between the two of them, of course, because you have to face a three-batter cluster if it's a clean inning. But if you bring a guy in with one or two outs, you might get away with only having to face the lefties if you don't break them up because you can make a change at the end of the inning. Um, but yeah, everything else, I, I agree completely with Chaz there. I mean, he's clearly one of their four or five best players this year. Um, if you look at his defensive metrics, you said above average, depending on what you look at, even well above average. I mean, not a guy you have to worry about even aging out of center field in the next year or two. You know, unless he really fell off a cliff. And that allows you to plan it out. You know, is this guy just our center fielder for the next three seasons, right? He's got three more years of control. Um, and if so, your offseason looks a little different maybe in terms of where you're looking to add a player. Do you trust Jordan's going to go back into left? Then you don't really need an outfielder at all. Um, and then you're looking at, well, where are we going to make our upgrades and what's available and that kind of thing. So for now, I wouldn't touch trading him. Um, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned the Bader Montgomery deal at the beginning there. I hear you on Dylan Cease. We'll do a whole trade deadline thing um, next Sunday or this coming Sunday so people can get questions in and we'll talk about different players. I'm not sure how many starting pitchers who are controllable um, are out there who are realistically gettable. And then you'd have to have a team that really believes in Chaz if you're talking about a high-end controllable starter. Um, who might be available. You have to look at some of the contenders. Um, you know, most of them need starting pitching. There's certainly a couple that might be looking. I mean, if you were to talk to the Marlins, um, you know, who've been trying to move some players around there and 
you know, with uh, Jazz Chisholm and, and things like that. Maybe Would Seattle you... with their their surplus of pitching and young pitching. Yeah, I mean, I'd be stunned if they were going to trade a Gilbert or a Kirby for Chaz. Would you trade Chaz for like six years of Brian Wu, who looks good but is very early in his career, but is more controllable, obviously? He's pretty much free for the next three years and, you know. Yeah, I mean, you package Chaz with a top-level prospect, like, you know, like a Melton or an Arigetti, or I guess top-level for the Astros system, and suddenly <laughs> you, could, you could argue that the Mariners are rejecting any trade that sends one of their best young pitchers to the, their the, the team they always seem to be chasing in the division. But you take in one of the Astros' best players, at least. You know, it kind of feels weird to say that now, but, I mean, the evidence is pretty clear. Yeah, so we're, we're aligned on McCormick here, although it does beg the question of, who are they going to move if they try to avoid dipping into prospects for rentals? Um, you know, if they're going to try to trade off the major league roster, I guess Jake Myers has a bullseye on him right now as some teams probably really like him because of the glove metrics and some of the flashes of league average offense, um, you know, high floor. I think I, with a... Good. I think I know a guy in Toronto who might have interest in him, but you know, that's a yeah. combo for another time. Yeah, that guy still lives here in West U, about six blocks from me. So uh, we can try to get him on. Uh, he's working remotely with the Jays for the most part. But um, yeah, yeah. I, I, sorry, back I, to I the was lineup points to, just with Toronto yeah, real quick there. If you know, if they did have interest in Myers, I mean, they've got Kier Meyer all over there, obviously, and they you know they've already moved Springer out of center, and you know Dalton Varsho can handle center and things like that, but. Um, yeah, you know, certainly Toronto has some pitching right now, and you know there could be a match there in a few different places. We'll get into that more in a preview show. I don't want to go too deep into it. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, just back to the lineup thing, and it's a bit of a tangent, but I think you speak see where Chaz is hitting these days. Kind of reminds you of what Tucker, where Tucker was hitting in 2021. Kyle Tucker was Yester's best hitter in 2021, and the fact that he hit at the bottom of the their core, I guess, like so in front of, I mean, it took a lot for Dusty to move. Tucker above Yuli that season. And Yuli was even pretty good that year. Um, and it kind of just speaks to this like minimalist approach of Dusty's. And I know, you know, we'll harp on that quite a bit over, over time, but it's kind of like, oh, you know, Correa was here first. So Correa has the five spot and Tucker will hit after him because Correa was here first. And, you know, maybe at the end of the year, I'll, re I'll rework it. I mean, Tucker, you kind of wonder like, Okay, like let's say Alex Bregman came up in 2019 and Kyle Tucker came up in 2016, something like that. Would Bregman be hitting at the bottom of the core and Tucker be hitting at the top just because Tucker would have been hitting at the top when they were in the 2017 World Series or what? Like, is there, I mean, sure, Bregman's an on base guy, but if you look at Bregman as an on base guy, why is he hitting fourth? Like, you know, so it kind of just feels like a, uh, a scenario where Tucker was just is slowly inching his way up. And I think we might see that with Chaz too. So the lineup, I think we're, both fortunate that line of construction is relatively insignificant because Dusty does a pretty lackluster job of optimizing it. it just happens to not leave too many runs on the table. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, why not optimize it when you have the chance, but that's a conversation for a different day. So um, you talk a lot about line of construction, but you and I both agree on Chaz. Hopefully we don't trade him. It would have to be a very enticing offer because at this point it's, it's like selling, selling a core piece. Yeah, and let's um, let's switch gears here for our last segment today. And just for people listening here, fourth episode of Mission Control. Um, this weekend, you know, they have a series that starts uh, later today against the Rockies, two-game series. Um, and then they have the four-game series with Oakland. Um, on Sunday, we're going to do an episode where we will solicit on Twitter, and you'll see it here on the cron below me as I'm talking um, but we would like you to get some of your trade ideas or proposals. Um, it could be a specific proposal, like would you do this, give up player X and Y for player Z? Or it can just be, you know, I like this player. Do you think we have enough to get him or what would it look like for us to get him, right? And so just throw some of that stuff at us. It's at Mission Astros on Twitter. Um, just write in the replies. You don't have to DM it. Um, you can if you want, um, and we'll be happy to pull some of those um, and answer those for you um, on Sunday, Sunday evening with that show. 
So for our last segment here today, we kind of want to talk a little bit, and I previewed this last show because I thought it was the most important thing that was going to come out of the Angels series, and then it got completely buried by how intense and sort of weird those games were. Um, but the state of the pitching staff, particularly Christian Javier, who'd had a long layoff because of fatigue, mechanical issues, Aiden had broken down what was going on there with the plane of his fastball and it no longer behaving in the very unique way it used to. Um, and so they gave him a very long rest around the All-Star break, almost two full weeks off. Decent start, five innings, three runs, you know, didn't appear to sort of break down. Um, obviously, there was some hard contact. Uh, Otani almost hit a 117-mile-an-hour home run that was about a foot foul uh, in the first inning. So, Aiden, what do you see out of that start from Javier? Um, personally, I'm still nervous. I still don't feel like he's in a place where you would trust him in game two or game three, even of a one, one division series. Um, you know, and that's a huge departure from the Christian Javier we had 10 months ago, uh, going into the postseason. So what'd you think of his start Sunday? How, where is the alarm for the rotation that's triggered to Javier, um, for you right now? Yeah, I'm I was pretty pleased with how he pitched yesterday. And I'll go into a few specifics about it. But, you know, there was a lot of concern going in. I broke it down pretty clearly. And it was pretty obvious to anybody who's been paying attention that he was not the same. Um, I don't think it's he's necessarily back to what he was before. Um, although he might, you would argue, before, meaning before this cold stretch in June, maybe. Maybe not his 2022 self, but that's, you know, maybe might be to some extent unsustainable on its own, right? Um so Christian Javier, so we'll look at the called strikes plus whiff percentage, um, which is just a general, you know, metric to, that j explains how well hitters seem to be uh, making swing decisions and succeeding in their swing decisions against him. Um, so just to be so clear, for called strike plus whiff percentage simply means what percentage of his pitches resulted in either a strike that no one swung at or they swung and missed. As a, as right. a percentage so basically it's like yeah so basically it's strikes minus foul balls because foul balls are a bit less or considerably less predictive of future success than called strikes and whiffs are so right. um so last year's called strikes plus whiff percentage was 29.4 percent um for reference league average this year is 28.2 percent so above average nothing crazy um and this year i'm gonna read off his game log uh, just briefly, his call strikes per, per whiff percentage by game. So just you know, bear with me, and I'll I'll uh, I'll bookmark specific points when needed. So he started with thirty six point six percent, then twenty nine point three, then twenty four, then twenty two point seven, twenty eight point six, twenty six point eight, thirty one point nine, thirty nine point eight. That was in his eleven strikeout start against the Angels in May. Twenty six point one, thirty point two, twenty six point one, twenty nine point four. So largely on par, if not better than what he was doing last year. It's not to say everything was better than what he was doing last year, but at least in that capacity, like, yeah, he was himself. Now, starting on that concerning night uh, in Cleveland, um, he his call strikes with Swiss percentage was 16.7%, 17.4%, 19.5%, 21.3%, and 23.9% uh, against Texas last the prior Monday. So, Pretty sure that's his, those are his five worst starts, or at least five of his six worst starts in called with strikes plus whiff percentage. So it was very clear that he had hit a roadblock, to say the least. It was a huge drop-off. And I think it makes sense. I mean, that, that start before the Cleveland start, six innings, one run, five Ks. And you also saw just in his strikeout numbers, he struck out two against Cleveland, two the next start against Washington, one against the Mets the following start, one against the Cardinals, and then four against Texas, but everything else seemed to go wrong against Texas. You know, all things considered, that Texas start was actually maybe one of the better ones he had in the last month, which says something given that he gave up eight runs. But regardless, um, last night against, uh, or on Sunday against uh Anaheim, he his call strikes plus whiffs percentage was back up to twenty nine percent, and 
um, his fastball whiff, whiff rate was, and you know, his fastball is known for its whiffs a lot more than it is. It's called strikes was 21%. And his season is last season, his fastball uh, whiff rate was 27.3%. So in a small sample, not all that far off from what we're used to. And even more encouraging than that, his slider, 12 swings, five of which were whiffs. Um, and Christian Javier's slide, you know, we talked a lot about his fastball. His slider has been considerably worse too. I'll pull up the numbers, but I'm pretty sure he his slider last year, um, hitters were uh, hitters were in uh, making contact with it on 61% of swings. And this year that's up to 71%. And that's both in the zone and out of the zone. In the zone, it's up from uh, 74 to 84. Out of the zone, it's up from 39 to 49. So basically, hitters were just are just able to hit his slider a lot better. And sure, that means a few more uh, called strikes because, uh, or I guess as a side note, it means a few more called strikes because he hasn't, uh, hitters feel more comfortable uh, against it. So they don't feel it as necessarily a weapon as much as it used to be. Um, but his slider is now a lot less reliable. And even if you watch it, you just see him spike a lot of sliders. Like it kind of feels like he's lost its feel to it. Maybe some of the uh, outcome metric issues are directly related to his issues with the fastball too. Um, but his slider, I can ask yeah. you a question here, Aiden. With his, you know, when a pitcher has two or three different pitches that each appear to be getting worse in outcomes, right, in terms of contact and all that, is it possible that only one of the pitches has actually physically gotten worse? Meaning, the res obviously we can kind of measure some of it, but if his fastball is that much easier for hitters to line up this year, does that make them more able to sit on an off-speed pitch that maybe hasn't changed at all in its physical properties or has changed very little but is simply now less able to surprise a hitter because a hitter's less worried about this other pitch? Or are you saying that there's evidence here that the pitches themselves have each gotten worse, the slider as well, um, you know, in, in their sort of physical properties? Yeah, I mean, in, in a vacuum, yes. I mean, pitches don't, aren't composed in a vacuum. They work in tandem and in, our, in, a, in an arsenal. I mean, pitcher versus hitter matchups are, real life chess matches to some extent and if you sacrifice all your pieces in chess and leave your queen out to dry you know it's not going to fare all that well but you know if you set your queen up around with uh pieces in an optimal configuration it'll flourish no matter the its position and so um you know, as a direct as a brief analogy there i think you can sort of see why it would be important that and you painted the picture pretty well about uh, how hitters are able to sit on off-speed more if they don't get fooled by the fastball as much. So, um, yes, is, that's an answer. But uh, Javier Slider looked very good last night. And his outcomes were fine, too. I mean, if you also if – you, if you look at that same stretch, you know, his I don't need to read his BABIPs beforehand. But BABIP has always been a thing that Christian Javier is going to have one of the lowest BABIPs in baseball, or at least when he's right he is. I mean, we saw last year. That's why he was able to start two no-hitters. Um, and – his BABIP in the Cleveland game was 350. Then Washington was down to 250. But if you remember, his results in that game were actually pretty good, even though he wasn't as sharp. Uh, then the Mets game was 444, 375, and then 412. And his season-long BABIP was 283. So all games where he was, you know, getting hit. This start, it was uh, 11 balls put in play, or not counting the home run, which isn't considered in BABIP. And three of them were. And so a few pieces of hard contact, especially early on, uh, he looked a lot like himself last night. I was I was very pleased. And, you know, he doesn't need to return to last year's form to be, you know, a key asset for the Astros. If he was what he was for the first two months of the season, um, I think everybody's thrilled. And it, it changes needs a lot more. You know, they still will go out and look for pitching. But there's a difference between needing pitching and uh, seeing it as an added benefit. Um, and the difference is what you feel like you need to give up for them. So he kind of protects the farm a little bit, too, and protects a guy like Chaz McCormick maybe more than more than uh, before. And so, um, you know, we'll talk about trade deadline specifics, but yesterday was encouraging for Javier. I mean, he might not be all the way back to what we would like him to be, but he was certainly better than, it was his best start he's given in since before that Cleveland start in, on June 9th. Yeah, and, you know, I'm, I'm glad you broke that down um, because you're right. If Javier's going to be the, 
you know, 80% of what he was last year, where you feel comfortable putting him out there and expecting to get 15 to 18 outs and be in the game, then you probably aren't going to sell that extra piece because you have to have a second starter. You know, the, the wild card format being what it is now, you really do need to have a second guy that you kind of trust, right, behind Valdez because you've got to win two out of three and you very well could be on the road. You know, if you look at the way Tampa and Baltimore are playing, chances are the second place team in the AL West isn't going to be higher than the fifth seed. And so if you go in as a five, you have to win two out of three games in Tampa or in Baltimore just to advance to the division series where you'd likely face Arlington or whatever. So, or the other one of the AL East teams. So that said, I think Javier right now probably doesn't have that trust from the front office yet coming off of this last start. I wouldn't be surprised if Dana does kind of push a lot more chips in than we're expecting here to try to get that second starter. Um, now, if he's not willing to do that and, you know, Dana's bias is towards amateur players and minor leaguers. And so I don't think he's the type of general manager who's going to put together large packages of prospects like a Dave Dombrowski just to plug the near term hole at all costs. But I wouldn't expect him to go out and trade for a pure innings eater, a guy who projects as a fourth or fifth starter to upgrade on Bialak, right? Upgrade on Ronald Blanco. My guess is if they play for a starter, he's tempted to play for a top three starter. And so if you don't want him to do that as a fan, if you're watching thinking, I'd actually not like to roll the dice here this season to try to win another ring by maximizing. I'd like to trust the guys we have. Then you really need to root for Christian Javier to have two more encouraging starts in a row in the next 10 or 11 days so that when you're going into the deadline on July 29th, 30th, whatever, it's not in Dana's mind that I have one ace, I've got Hunter Brown on an innings restriction of some sort, I would think Hunter Brown is about to start getting stretched out more, and we'll see. If Dana sees it as, I've got this ace and then God knows what else, I could see him giving up an extra piece or two that fans might not want him to give up. Now, on the other hand, if you're a pessimist, and I said this last show, if you think as I do that uh, this might be coming down in the next two or three years where we're not going to be winning 90-plus, Maybe you do want Dana feeling like he needs to push some chips in. Maybe you're not crazy about Melton and Arigetti and feel like, you know what? Let's try to keep this window maximally open. But if you're not that way, Javier matters more than almost any other pitcher on the staff right now. If he continues to look improved from that five or six start stretch in June, I think you're going to see either a focus on a hitter a focus on a back-of-rotation starter where they keep their prospect powder dry, or even bullpen reinforcements to give Dusty more fresh arms earlier in games behind Brown and Javier and people like that. So I think Javier's very important um, in terms of where he pushes Dana uh, with these next two starts. And but just real quick, those two starts, his next one's going to be against Oakland. And... In some ways, that's almost the perfect team for him to face right now because he's either going to encourage you with the outcome or he's going to set off some real alarm bells if he's not missing bats, if there's a lot of contact and there's no chases and he's spiking the slider like you talked about. A bad start against Oakland um, kind of pushes Dana more definitively, I think, than if he got you know six innings, four or five runs against the Rangers um, the following week. Uh, last thoughts there on, on how Javier intersects with the deadline strategy, and then we'll, we'll wrap here, Aiden. Yeah, Javier, so now if Javier, if you feel good about Javier being your two and Brown being your three, or you can switch those, it doesn't necessarily matter. But if you feel good about both starting a playoff game, which it does seem like they should, um, at least by the end of the season, then you're only looking for a fourth starter. And in the regular season, at least, if you plan on running a five-man rotation, 
and having a four or five of France and Arkady, like the list of pitchers you can acquire to actually just make a huge difference there is pretty slim. I mean, you cut it down a lot then if you're looking for a guy to replace a Belak or a Blanco. Like, I don't think there are more than 10 available pitchers who I can look at and say, he is enough, he is better enough, or he's an, enough of an upgrade from uh, France or an Arkady that the Astros should be giving a prospect for him. Like, France and Arkady are both fine starters or nobody not neither pitcher do i feel great about starting a playoff game so that's why they probably do need a starter but if you have france narkidi as your four and five and you have blanco and belak ready to make a spot start or even in a six-man rotation you don't really need any more innings eaters than you already have you just kind of need everybody to stay healthy as is so that's a pretty big sign like if you, if you can just erase Javier's uh, fatigue and innings concern, and by no means am I saying that you definitely can, it's just more exploring that possibility. But if you, if you can erase that, then yeah, the, the inning eater becomes a lot less needed. And if you're going to trade for a playoff starter anyway, then you really don't need an innings eater. Like it basically, and no matter the perspective, if Javier's how he, how we think he is, at least based on that last start, I they don't think they need multiple pitchers. I think they need just one because they don't need multiple guys to start playoff games, and they don't need multiple guys to eat innings. So what would they do with a with a? Uh, I saw his name shopped around today, Aaron Savale. If they also acquire uh, Jordan Montgomery or a Marcus Stroman, like what would they do with him? Not not more than you would need from an Arcidi or a France. So that becomes pretty trivial then. Yeah, and we're going to talk about some names on Sunday. You know, I was looking today. A guy who straddles the line between a little better than Urquidy or playoff rotation. I want to talk about Jack Flaherty a little. because Montgomery gets a lot more play when people talk about uh, the Cardinals. Um, but Flaherty is a, also a pending free agent and, and a little trickier guy in terms of upside and also dependability. Um, so we're going to talk about names on Sunday. Um, but I can't help but think their last thought when you talk about, okay, if you trust Javier and Brown or you eventually think you should be able to trust them and will need to trust them, then you're really threading the needle to find a pitcher who's enough of an upgrade to slot right behind them and to give up capital. And then you get back into, I know Twitter today was talking about him again, and I mentioned it as well, guys like Bellinger, right? Like Cody Bellinger, where if we're just trying to get better here, and we can't really get that much better than France and Urquidy without dipping into the prospect capital, then should we dip into that capital to try to get someone who'd be better than Jolks, Dubon, whatever amorphous group of players, Jose Abreu perhaps, is getting that playing time um, in that first base slash third outfielder mix. Um, you know, even after Jordan comes back, there's a little more everyday playing time available there. So uh, we'll talk about all that stuff on um, on Sunday night. And again, please, I'll put it on the screen here again for you. If you have a trade idea or a player of interest or a proposal, please send it to us. We'll break it down a little bit in advance so that we've got some data um, ready to go when we go live in the show on Sunday. Um, and we're getting right up to it. I mean, the deadline is August 1st. That is 13 days away. Um, and hopefully the Astros make one or two difference-making moves here. They're within three games of the Rangers, three and a half. Um, and obviously they're two up on the Red Sox and Yankees for that last wild card spot. So really kind of in no man's land in terms of do you go all in to try to win the division and be real aggressive or are you just tinkering around the edges and hoping for health? So we'll look at trades that would do both on Sunday. Uh, any last thought, Aiden? Yeah, I mean, I think the Astros are, are in a good place coming to the trade deadline just because, you know, they're not like a, a Reds, for example, who need any pitcher just to make sure that they're not starting Luke Weaver in a playoff game, for, an, for example. Like the Astros are in a position where they can cut the list of guys who will make a significant difference down to you know actual impact guys they don't necessarily need these you know fringe mlb players because they have these below average mlb guys at least not any below average mlb guys that they're willing to take out of the lineup so um we'll talk that a lot about that and a lot more on the trade deadline episode um there's a lot to unpack there i think that episode we gotta we gotta be careful that it doesn't turn into a three four hour episode with how much we have to talk about but um i'm excited i think it's gonna it's gonna be a fun time and you know trade deadlines where all the twitter gms have their most fun so 
uh, I'm looking forward to it. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll catch up then. Yeah. If it's a fire hose, we might have to have uh, a two-parter, but we'll see how many uh, we get. So again, it's at Mission Astros uh, on Twitter, at Mission Astros. And we will see you guys in five days.